Everybody, welcome to Bone to Pick Biz. I am Michael Davis, and we are coming to you today from the international headquarters of the Vic Firth Company in Boston, Massachusetts. I am absolutely honored and thrilled today to have the great pleasure to sit down with the man himself, the great Vic Firth. Uh, Vic is largely regarded as one of the greatest percussionists of all time. Uh, he joined the Boston Symphony Orchestra at the age of 21 in 1952, and stayed in that position as their timpanist for 50 years. He uh, led one of the most prolific teaching studios at the New England Conservatory for over five decades. His books and arrangements have been a mainstay in the percussion pedagogy and have influenced uh, decades of percussion students. Uh, he is the founder of this company, the Vic Firth Company, which manufactures sticks and mallets, and they currently manufacture over 12 million sticks a year. He also has a myriad of other business interests, including uh, Vic Firth Gourmet, which manufactures his uh, famous pepper grinders. It's a remarkable and extraordinary career, um, and I think in addition to being a personal inspiration for me, I think the great Peter Erskine said it best when he simply said, Vic Firth is the consummate musician, teacher, and businessman. And we are just so happy that, uh, Vic, you are willing to spend some time with us today. So first off, thank you so much for, for having us here and for and taking the time. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And if you could give me any more compliments like that, you know, I'm all done right around <laughs> my head. Well, each one of them is well-earned, uh, uh, that is for sure. So, well, listen, during our time today, I'd love to spend a focus on both aspects of your career because you uh, have an incredible career as, as a musician and then also an incredible career as a businessman. Why don't we start maybe at the very beginning, and uh, I know you were born in Massachusetts, grew up in Maine. Your father was a trumpet player and got you started on the cornet, and maybe talk about those early years in your life and also how you kind of gravitated to the percussion. The reason I gravitated to the percussion, because as a trumpet player, I had the worst embouchure you can imagine. <laughs> you couldn't make a funnier, more ugly sound than what I did, and I worked hard at doing it. So I took a trombone lesson, I took a clarinet lesson, I studied theory, I did everything except play the drums. The final analysis, my poor mother gave up and said, go see Bob Ramsell and take some drum lessons, which I did and that she pressed the right key. There I seemed to have a talent. So that's how I became a percussion player as opposed to a brass player. Mm -hmm. Not a very exciting story, <laughs> but I made the right turn when I did it. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Um, I know when you were young, you also, uh, not just when you were young, but throughout your career, but early on you were arranging and, and doing all sorts of things with, with bands, right? Yeah, I was a jazz drummer, mm -hmm. and I had a big band of 12 guys, and we played all over New England. We had a professional book. I mean, we were really, when, we, when the band showed up, because we were all young, the guy that ran the dances, because that's what we did in those days, is played for dances, was he thought he had a kid's outfit. He didn't know what to expect. And we had a very professional sounding band. And I, I kept that going up through my first year at the conservatory. And then I got a scholarship to go to Tanglewood, which is the summer home of the Boston Symphony. Mm -hmm. That's when my whole life reversed, reversed its direction. Mm. And I started looking at the classical field mm. as opposed to the jazz field. Mm -hmm. 
I missed that turn. I've always wondered where I would have ended up if I had gone the other way. Yeah, I'm sure it would have been equally successful just in a, in a different... Uh, You've, you flatter me, but anyway. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your time at, at New England Conservatory. I know uh, uh, you went to school there, and I also understand you used to come down to New York and take lessons with the great Saul Goodman back in, in those days. What was, what was that like in, in terms of your Well, I, I started at the conservatory, and the teacher that I had been studying with before I was accepted there left. So I had a teacher that was really, I won't say substandard, but it was not the right guy for me. Mm -hmm. So I decided I'll go to New York and take a lesson every couple of weeks with Solly Goodman. And he was a great inspiration. Mm -hmm. Then came on board at the conservatory, my predecessor with the Boston Symphony, whose name was Roman Schulz. And he was of the traditional German style of playing, made a wonderful sound played the oboe, played piano. He was a great musician. But the difference between him and Solly Goodman was Saul was a great technician, had a great concept of how to produce different sounds, whereas the other gentleman thought and talked only about music. Mm. So I was unique in the school of timpani playing that I studied with both of these opposing teachers and got a lot out of both of them. Mm -hmm. Eventually joined the orchestra with my present teacher there, and then succeeded him four years later. Wow. So the, the course of events worked all in my favor. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that leads me right into what the 1952, your, your career took this meteoric leap when you uh, won the position as the timpanist in Boston. No, I, I, I won a position as a percussionist. As a percussionist, excuse yes, me. Okay. Percussion. And then assumed timpani I was immediately like... playing timpani, but I went in as a percussionist. Okay. What, what was that like? I mean, obviously, Boston Symphony Orchestra is one of the great orchestras anywhere in the world. Um, you're 21 years old, and now all of a sudden you're in this orchestra. You, and you won the audition when you were still in school, I believe. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Funny story there. I, they, I didn't pass piano. So the director of the conservatory called me and says, you can't graduate. And I said, uh, well, I'm sorry, but I can't come back. I have a job. And he said, where do you have a job? We always referred to Symphony Hall as across the street. And I said, across the street. He said, doing what, ushering? <laughs> and I said, no, I did better than that. <laughs> anyway, I took a piano exam again, played the same music poorly, and graduated with highest honors. <laughs> That's life. They, I learned they, a lot uh, from that lesson. Looked at it a little differently now that yeah. you remember the Boston Symphony yeah. Orchestra. Um, Maybe you could talk about who was the, the, I was interested in a couple of the conductors and, and we'll get to uh, Maestro Zhao in a little bit, but when you, when you first joined the orchestra, who was the, uh, the maestro at that point? Charles Munch, mm. who succeeded Kusevitsky, who was a tyrant. Munch mm -hmm. was very much of a soft and gentlemanly type of individual. He also didn't over-rehearse, which the orchestra loved him for, because mm -hmm. everybody likes to rehearse. Right. He was one of those that was more inspirational and more things happened when you weren't suspecting it at the concert. Mm -hmm. So with him, you didn't give 100% of your attention. You gave 110% because you never knew when he was going to take an abrupt turn mm. and leave you out there in a bag of wind. <laughs> but it was a great experience playing with him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about your approach to, uh, I guess it's fairly legendary how you adjust parts and would tweak things in, within orchestral parts that made, made it make more sense for percussionists. And it sounds like we were 
I'm so happy that we get to sit in front of these uh, amazing timpani today. Um, but it sounds like that's part of your personality. You were describing these instruments as the only ones in the world and how you mm-hmm. custom design it. And before we talk about the actual playing, maybe you could just tell us about these timpani because they, uh, they're, they're beautiful looking. And they, as, as you can see, they've had a, a, a wonderful life to themselves. They have some wear marks on them. They've, <laughs> they've played a lot of music. Now, the man who designed and built them for me was named Gunther Ringer from Berlin. And I met him through a gentleman in New Orleans who was bringing in a pair of drums made by him. And I saw the instruments and was so taken with them that I immediately went to Berlin and we struck a deal where I would distribute the timpani in North and South America. Now, it sounded like a big deal, but it means, you know, six sets a year or something. (laughs) But I was doing it for the fun. Mm -hmm. He was such a craftsman and had such an organized mind that it was an experience working with him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these were the last set that I gave him the specs for. And the diameters and the depths of the bowl and everything are all different than all the other ones he made. Consequently, these have a real dark, brassy sound. They're mm-hmm. really exciting to hear and play, mm-hmm. especially if you know how to play them. <laughs> so that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean doesn't me, mean. but... It, <laughs> I think it does. And how, how many years did you play these in the, in the orchestra? Oh, probably I've had that set for 30 years. Wow. That's amazing. Um, let's talk about the, a couple of your books, which I know are, are really, as I said in the introduction, mainstays in, the, in percussion pedagogy. Um, the solo timpanist and the solo snare drummer. Um, they remain highly influential, and it seems like... Um, it seems like it's almost a precursor to your career as a businessman that you're, as a musician, you were always tweaking and looking to improve things. And, and, and um, everybody that I talked to about you has said that, that you're just constantly in that mode. And that's probably what's made you so great and successful. But maybe you could just talk about your overall approach to playing and then maybe those books uh, in particular. Well, let me explain the books first. The, the solo timpanist was kind of, Saul Goodman wrote the book that everybody was studying from, but it only went part way to the finale. So I thought something should be written that's much more challenging than what Saul had written. So whereas his exercises and his etude stopped is where I began. Mm, okay. So they're not meant for a beginner, they're not meant for an intermediate, they're meant, from someone, meant for someone who's trying to improve their mechanical musical skills. Okay. And the same with the solo snare drummer. Okay. If you looked closely at some of that music, I've stolen and disguised some of the famous excerpts in the repertoire. Uh-huh. But it, I, I don't hide that fact because the things that challenge a young student and having played something similar to it, when they get to it, it feels familiar. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. the reason that all the, the material I wrote mm-hmm. was patented excuse me, conceived. Mm -hmm. And also, not to just focus on that, but you did many arrangements and uh, compositions for percussion ensembles and and, and, uh, are legendary even just within themselves. But uh, um, I assume you took that same approach to writing for the percussion ensemble. uh, Yeah, everything I tried to do was somewhat commercially oriented and then I wrote three forms of each thing. For example, the percussion ensembles that I wrote were three elementary, three intermediate, and three advanced. So you could, kids could get in at all levels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's too many guys that are writing way out and beyond. 
and they don't make any practical sense from a teacher's point of view. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I never did anything that I didn't have fun doing. So when you teach students, if they're not enjoying some of the music they're playing and accept the challenge as fun, you lose something. Mm -hmm. And that was always one of my theories with teaching because I taught at the conservatory for nearly 50 years. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. I got sick of hearing myself talk, I tell you, <laughs> solving the same problems. Well, that's, well, that's some uh, great words that, that yeah, it's got to be fun because otherwise, especially when you're talking about music, that's why we're Correct. in it is for the, the, the fun and the, and the, the joy in it. Um, well, let's jump ahead. I know I'm asking you questions that I asked you before the interview because I'm just I'm so thrilled to be here and, uh, and it's such an incredible story and, and a career. Um, can you share your memories of uh, those first sticks that you made and, and how that kind of blossomed? And, you know, obviously this is a huge, um, big, big corporation now, but, uh, but what was the very beginning like when you made those first sticks? Well, the reason for making them was I was playing a lot of contemporary chamber music <clears throat> and the, what was written, there really weren't sticks that could accommodate the sounds from the particular drums that you were playing, and gongs and cymbals, and all mixed percussion bag. So rather than moan and groan and complain that you can't do this right, I decided to just make some myself and use them for my own particular style and, and demand, musical demands. Well, I had a woodturner in Montreal who actually hand-turned every pair of sticks. And I brought them into Boston, brought them to the conservatory just to, to have a pair of sticks of my own to teach with. And the students started seeing these sticks. And everybody starts right off on the right, simple, oh, these feel good, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so the next thing you know, I get a call from a drum shop in Chicago saying, I understand you're in the stick business. We'd like to purchase some. And I said, well, I'm not in the stick business, but if I can help you out, I'll make you some. So I made, let's say, 10 pair for Maury Lishon at the drum shop in Chicago. Well, the, as drummers travel about, they have their own fraternity and their own places to hang. That's a drum shop. Mm -hmm. I started getting calls from a number, number of drum shops all over the country. Well, we got up to 30 pair a month, which was a big deal. We now do, on the two 10-hour shifts, 80,000 sticks per day. <laughs> so we've, we've graduated from the minor <laughs> leagues. And where they all go, I am still amazed at. But anyway, I have to tell you those numbers. Because when I walk through the plant and look around, I think to myself, how did I get myself here and in this position? Yeah. It must have been That's a good. series of smart mistakes or something. <laughs> anyway. Well, it's some, uh, some brilliant uh, mistakes, if you want to call them that. And, and, uh, and we're at the headquarters. Of course, your uh, plant is up in Maine, but we can hear uh, all the activity going on right now. It's, uh, we're it's, busy. A, it's always uh, going like crazy. Maybe you could tell it's such a funny story that you told me earlier, but how some deer droppings uh, helped your uh, path in terms of your, uh, one of your early suppliers and still suppliers. I made a trip down south where the hickory grows. And my, my manager of the plant says, whatever you do, don't dress like a dormitory. Put on some jeans, bring some rubber boots, wear a plaid shirt, whatever. Don't look like you normally look. <laughs> we got there, and I looked like I normally look, with just a shirt and a jacket, whatever. And the, the uh, fellows down there in Tennessee were a bit aloof 
might even say rude, until I happened to look down on the ground and there were some fresh droppings from deer. So I bent over and picked it up and said, oh, you guys have a lot of animals in this area because this is done this morning. This is very fresh. What do you know about hunting? You forget I'm from Maine and we hunt when we were kids, we go hunting. What kind of a gun do you use? 30-odd six. What grain bullet do you use in those woods? 180 grain. Oh, we became the best of friends. <laughs> that opened all doors. They were dressed in combat fatigues. I thought they were going to excommunicate me before, <laughs> I, before I got out of there. We became the best of friends, and I'm still working with the same characters. That is fantastic. 25 years later. You knew, it's amazing. You knew how to deal on that level and, and every other level. Nobody would ever thought of some deer droppings would raise <laughs> as much hell as it did. <laughs> That is such a great story. Thanks for telling that, Vic. Um, well, we talked about a little bit about it. You, you now have over 300 products that you sell. You have 12 million sticks a year in sales or more. Um, obviously, from that very beginning, you've grown just tremendously. How have you, uh, I know you? I know you're a brilliant businessman, even though you're very, uh, very modest and self-effacing, but how, how have you approached that growth and, and been able to just kind of make it grow so successfully? Because a lot of companies, they, they grow and then they lose their, uh, their focus and, and consequently their business. Early on, I learned that I walk better than I run. Mm. So rather than chasing the moon, I just took things as they came, but with a few basics in mind. It had to be the finest quality available. It had to be consistent had to be deliverable within 48 hours, and we had to be constantly innovative. Now, that's about as mm. 101 economics as you can get, mm -hmm. but that's why it worked. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I go up to the factory and I see something being done. That's, they tell me, we've, we've just improved this. We've cut the costs or we've improved the labor, whatever, by a certain percentage. Great, wonderful. I would like to see that better in three months. You've set a new level, great. What do we do to take it to the next level? Mm -hmm. And I've been constantly persistent in chasing quality, delivery, and new products. Mm -hmm. Never stop. Mm -hmm. Never stop thinking. Wow, that's, that's I bore it, myself to death thinking about it, I must tell you. <laughs> Well, and uh, I know young people are so influenced by you both uh, through through your uh, books and your, your your life as a musician, but then also obviously what you've done uh, as a business person. I think it's so important for young people today, especially young musicians, to come at it from an entrepreneurial mindset. And it doesn't mean you have to go out and try to build the Vic First Company because that's a lot of things have to happen for that to to be a possibility. But but I do think it's a matter of having an attitude of creating opportunities that don't exist, especially the way the music business is changing now. But you've kind of touched on it, but I, I was wondering if there's anything more. What what qualities within yourself do you think had, uh, or maybe common qualities within yourself, helped you as a musician and then have also helped you as a business person? I can summarize the whole question in one word, persistence. Mm. No matter what I did, <clears throat> right or wrong, if it was wrong, I would keep after it till I got it right. And if it was right, I kept after it till it got better. Now, whether you're talking about how you play your instrument, 
or if you have any ideas of something entrepreneurial. But you, you know how many hours a day you practiced. Mm -hmm. I used to do six to eight hours every day, nonstop. And the day before I auditioned for the Boston Symphony, I played nonstop 14 hours. I played more with one hand then than I do with two now. <laughs> but I was in that shape, and that was the kind of the level of achievement that I went for. You can't do anything unless you work your butt off. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, that's powerful. I mean, persistence, I think you're absolutely right. That's, that's and I was determined to get it right no matter how, what, if you can't, if there's a stone wall and you can't get over it, you go under it, you go around it, you can get through it somehow. Yeah. Don't just give up and say that's impossible. That's amazing that the day before your audition, I think a lot of people would be going the other way, and, but you were, you were I had a gallon determined. of orange juice, and every, every two hours I'd drink some orange juice. That was it. <laughs> Non-stop. <laughs> well, it was, obviously was the right thing to do, that's for sure. Um, every drummer, all my great drummer friends, all play Vic Firth Six, and they all, um, all the way from the great Peter Erskine to, uh, I'm working with a great drummer in New York now named Jared Schoening. We're playing uh, the show Pippin together. He's an amazing player and he's just a huge fan of yours and plays all your sticks. I was curious, you have such an impressive roster of, of artists that play your, play your sticks and mallets. Um, how do you go about picking your clinicians and your endorsers and, and, uh, and maybe you could just share a couple. So I was particularly interested in how your association with Steve Gadd maybe came about, but I was kind of in a wider way, just how you guys go about finding these, these great people to play your sticks, or maybe they find you, but. Well, let's start with Steve Gadd. He's been, a, he's been a, uh, one of us for years. I mean, I can't even tell if it's 30 years or 35 years. He's been an endorser. And he had some family living close by here in Boston. And when he used to come to visit, we'd get together and have a drink or come over to the house. He had two daughters, and I had two daughters, so we had a lot in common. And I asked him, what do you play for sticks? And he said, the SD2 Bolero and the SD4. I said, well, they're, they're kind of two different sticks. Why don't we take the measurements and the specs and amalgamate them and see what we come up with? And that's how we arrived at the stick that we produced for Steve Gadd, and that's how we came up with that barrel tip. It was the first stick that had that tip shape on it. Mm. He threw me a curve, though. He says, I want it black. I said, black? How am I going to make a black stain? I mean, we never had only natural sticks. Mm -hmm. I told him, I said, and he, and he put a list price on it. He said, I want to charge $10. In those days, drumsticks retail at about $6. I said, Steve, you're going to kill it, $10. You can buy a Rolls Royce and you can buy a Chevrolet. You get to the same place and they sell more <laughs> Chevrolets than they do Rolls Royce. No, I want to start with a $10 list and black. We did. Couldn't make them fast enough. <laughs> Couldn't keep up with the artists. And he's been a terrific colleague and, and musical inspiration to me. When I go and listen to him play, it may as well be Stokowski conducting. The musicality and the sensitivity to what he does is uh, never-ending. Never-ending. I always smile when I hear him play as I do with a lot of my endorsers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or I should say most of my endorsers. Maybe I should say all of my endorsers. <laughs> that way I don't get in trouble. <laughs> but the, the other endorsers came by, by virtue of who they were and where they were at in the music business. We had a lot of young people that tried to become endorsers, which you can't 
support them all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was the, probably the first one that started using endorsers and making signature sticks. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. Mm. We still, we just did a new one with Vinnie Caliuta and another gentleman, I can't tell you his name. No, I have to let that one slip in the cracks. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a, is there a Peter Ruskin stick? Is there a signature stick? For I think we got three. Oh, okay. Actually, <laughs> Peter's a great one. <laughs> He's the best. One of yeah. my all-time favorite. Uh, He's drummers. one of the tops. Yeah. Musically and personally. Yeah, a special individual. No, no question about it. Yeah. Um, Vic, part of your, what I would honestly call genius, is uh, seems to be your competitive nature. Um, and your desire, as you say, to constantly grow and improve and, and that persistence that you just talked about. Um, with that in mind, could you talk to us a little bit about Vic Firth Gourmet? I know you've sold off the company, but you still have these amazing uh, uh, pepper mills and salt grinders and rolling pins. And just the fact that you were able to uh, think outside the box, literally, and, and get outside of percussion and, and music and come up with this whole line, and, and you told us also before, and maybe you could repeat it, how you uh, connected with Mario Batali, the great chef. Um, but I know you have other business interests over the years, but maybe we could just kind of focus on the Vic Firth Gourmet for a second for us. Well, that's, I kind of fell into that. I bought this factory in Newport, Maine, and the previous owner had generated a dozen different businesses, but they were all unsuccessful. I was naturally much smarter than him, and I was going to make them successful. So I made wooden bananas, wooden apples, uh, all kinds of wooden fruit. I made all the beta bars for Electrolux vacuum cleaners, Hoover vacuum cleaners. Everything I made, being as brilliant as I am, was a failure. <laughs> we lost money on every, every single one of them. And, uh, I figured, well, that's shows you how smart I really am. <laughs> However, the gourmet was such a high quality, and I happened to own the patents to the mechanism, which is unique. It's the only pepper mill you can clean, take apart. Mm. So we pursued that one. And I must say, it was modestly successful, uh, but it was a lot of fun doing it. Mm -hmm. And I got to meet a lot of chefs. <laughs> and that's how I came in contact with Mario Batali. He was at the time just opening, or he just opened his first restaurant. And I went to visit him with a friend of his, which was working for me. And we got along famously. And I said, you know, how about a Mario Batali pepper mill? I said, we'll do the same thing we do with the signature drumsticks. Thought the idea would work. Mm -hmm. He said, it's great. Okay, you want a natural finish or do you want a colored mill? I'd like an orange mill. I looked at his shoes and saw these orange shoes, and I figured, oh boy, this is going to be trouble. <laughs> so I said, orange? Who would put an orange pepper mill on the dining room table? Said, it's got to be orange. Turned about to be the best seller we ever had. <laughs> and he was a great, great sport to work with. Mm -hmm. And he's become, as you well know, enormously successful. Yeah, yeah, no he's question. He's the kingpin. Yeah, he certainly is. He's amazing. He's all, all over the place, both as a chef and TV personality yeah. and everything. It's amazing. I like the fact that you said, I happen to own the patent on a this, this grinding thing. Not that many uh, percussionists ha happen to own patents. That's amazing yeah, unto well, itself. <laughs> probably the wrong way to say it, but it's the truth. Yeah, yeah. 
That's awesome. Um, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the business, but while all this is going on, you're still maintaining this world-class performance career and this incredible uh, teaching studio at New England Conservatory. Um, what do you, and I know you're very close with your family and, and all, the, all the aspects of your life. How have you been able to, to balance, you know, specifically the business side uh, with the music side? Well, when I went to rehearsal in the morning, first of all, I came to the office for a couple of hours. Then I went into Symphony Hall. When I was in the office, I wasn't thinking about Beethoven. When I was in Symphony Hall, I wasn't thinking about drumsticks. So I completely isolated the different things that I did by virtue of what I was doing when I was doing it. So nothing conf was in conflict one with the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I learned early on that when you perform with a group like the Boston Symphony, you've got to take those two hours in that concert and it's got to be absolute perfection every time. Every time. There's no excuse. You can't let illness, you can't let family problems, you can't let anything interfere with the quality of that performance. Mm -hmm. And it was under those rules that I played. And it worked for me. Mm -hmm. It worked for me. I could have the flu and was going going to die in the next hour, but I could still play the Brahms second, which I did. Mm -hmm. And you never know I was sick. Of course, I fell over a couple of times. But <laughs> no, not really. Um, there's a great drummer in New York who's a very dear friend of mine named Warren Oates, who plays your sticks all the time and is a huge fan of yours. And he always would say to me, you got to live in the moment. And it sounds like that's what you did. You were in, and do. Uh, you, you, you're present in what you're doing and, and focused on what you're doing at that particular point in time, whether you're spending time with your daughters or, or playing in Symphony Hall. Yeah, and uh, yeah. uh, that's, that's awesome stuff. Um, I w had one question that was kind of unrelated, but I know you had a, a tremendous re relationship with Seiji Ozawa over the years, and, mm -hmm. and that was a very special connection in terms of a musician and a, and a conductor. Maybe you could just talk about a couple of favorite memories you might have of... Uh, of well, I first met Seiji. He came to Tanglewood as a conductor. And I used to do a class with Aaron Copeland for conductors and composers because they, the percussion department was their least knowledgeable area. Okay. In, one, in this one year, I had Seiji, Zubin Media, and Claudio Abato in the same class, if you can imagine. All three of them students. I had some other conducting majors who ended up with the Salvation Army, as far as I know. But those three all ended up with major, major world-class orchestras. Yeah. And in that session, Seiji never opened his mouth once, never said a word. And when I'd say to everybody, do you understand? And I'd look at him, he no response. So years later, I said to him, what the hell were you thinking of? I'm asking you all these questions, you're just shaking your head. <laughs> He said, what were you thinking of? I couldn't speak English, and you never figured that one out. <laughs> no, I enjoyed working with him. He was a man with great, great ideas, persistence like you can't believe, worked terribly, terribly hard. He was really dedicated to the music and the performance. And we, he had two favorites in the orchestra. I'm flattering myself now was me and the Sherman Walt, the principal bassoon player. And we could do no wrong. <laughs> and we enjoyed Seiji a lot, great deal. Sherman, unfortunately, got killed in an automobile accident. But then I became 
Sage's primary problem. <laughs> and I, we, we did a lot of things together, and I know a lot of things about him personally that the world doesn't know of what a great human being he is and things that he's done for other people that I wouldn't talk about because it's his private affairs. But mm -hmm. He's been a constant inspiration mm. from a moral and a musical point of view wow. all these years. Well, he was with the Boston for 29 years. Yeah, it's such a long time. The conductor they ever had. Wow. Wow, there's really great uh, memories there. Um, Vic, you're, you are a very generous man, and I appreciate your time today. Is uh, I know you've done a lot of interviews over the years, and uh, is there anything that uh, uh, you haven't been asked that you wanted to say uh, regarding anything in your extraordinary life? That's a good one. <laughs> Have I ever been asked anything or I have not been asked? You know, Michael, I can't really come up with a fast, smart-ass answer. <laughs> because you've been very thorough and you've asked a lot of questions that I'm surprised that you asked. Not that they weren't good questions, but you went into areas that normally you don't talk about. Mm. Or they mm. don't have the wisdom to ask them. Mm. Well. But, I can't think of one surprise to throw at you. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, I guess you've already kind of touched on it and, and given us all, in addition to the incredible inspiration you bring to everything, but you, some great advice in, in the time we spent today. But I always kind of like to finish up um, with the great artists like yourself and, and just ask if, uh, if you could give young people today who are going into music or business, if you had one, one or two pieces of advice uh, that might help them get uh, going in the right direction, what, what might that be? I go back to my key word of persistent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've got to believe in yourself and do everything that justifies your beliefs, whatever that might be. And another thing that I'm very tough with, especially with my own students, keep yourself clean. Because mm -hmm. you've got to be an athlete to survive in this business. Mm. And you can't fool with anything. Mm-hmm be it drugs or alcohol, that's a serious area to trespass in, and you do yourself nothing but harm. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, it's a matter of stick to your guns, persist, I keep using that word over and over, mm -hmm. and you'll come out on the top end of the pile. Mm -hmm. There's always room at the top for quality. Mm -hmm. No matter how crowded it is, there's always room, as you well know. Mm -hmm. Those are great words. That's very, very thoughtful and very much appreciated. Well, well, Vic, once again, thank you for uh, spending some time with us today, allowing us to come into your headquarters here and uh, treating us so wonderfully. Uh, really, really, really appreciate your time and, and, and mostly for setting the bar so high for all of us as musicians and business people as well. It was a great pleasure, Michael. Thank you, Vic. Enjoyed we will, it. We will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.